Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. Terry's going to come and read the scripture from Psalm 119, uh, and then we'll jump in. How I love your instruction. It is my meditation all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are always with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, because your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the elders because I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path to follow your word. I have not turned from your judgments, for, your, for you yourself have instructed me. How sweet your word is to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every false way. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Terry. All right, so we are right here, like, in the middle of Psalm 119. Anybody ever read all of Psalm 119? It takes about 20 minutes to read the whole thing. Um, and most, most folks haven't read through the whole thing. They look at Psalm 119, and they're like, that is, that's, that's long. I mean, that's 100 and some odd verses. I don't, I don't know about that. Um, psalm 119 is, is a beautiful, beautiful psalm. And so uh, you'll see if you have the study God's word, desiring God's word, growing in love for God's word. Psalm 119 is one of those psalms that I, I think is, there's a point, in our, there may be a point in our lives where we could read and recite Psalm 119 and really mean every bit of it. But I think more, more often Psalm 119 is aspirational. It's more like I'm trying to stoke myself up for desire for God's word. A lot of the psalms are that way. A lot of the psalms of dedication, we, and, and a lot of the songs that we sing in church Father, I adore you. I lay my life before you. Well, the reality is if I looked at every moment of my life this past week, that wasn't true. It just wasn't. And when I say things like, I love God's word, I meditate on it day and night, except for the hours of 8 a.m. to noon, and then noon to 5, and then 5 to 10. Actually, I, I meditate on it between 5 and 5.15 a.m., you know, if I'm up that early. If I have a quiet time, right? A lot of the times when we read these things and we say these things, they're really aspirational. It's a way of, of talking to ourselves and building up dedication, building up that love that we aspire to within our own hearts. We all know this in relationships. You, you've spent time with someone who initially you were on the fence about, right? You've, you've spent time with friends. You have friends in your life, I hope, unless you really just give up on people quick, I hope you have people in your life, at least family members, who at first you're kind of like, I don't know, I don't know about this person. I mean, they don't really, they're not really, like we don't have a ton in common. And then over time, as you grow in relationship, you grow in love for this person and appreciation for who they are. Or maybe worse, maybe at the beginning, you really can't stand them, but you're in a situation where you've got to be together and you've got to find a way to make it work and over time, you learn to come to an appreciation of them. I had one coworker in 2006. Now, now this is, it's one thing when you're in an office environment. It's another thing when you're like in a workplace where you have to be there and you can just get away with being cordial. But when you're working on like a ministry team with somebody, that's when it gets really hard because you're supposed to like these people. 
Like, you're supposed to love them with the love of Jesus and, like, be family with them. And you're like, yeah, but right now I can't even stand their guts. Like, it's, and I'm supposed to, like, go out and love our neighborhood with this person? So back in 2006, I was on this ministry team. I had moved from Memphis to Boston, and I was working for an organization uh, that did uh, community development work. Uh, in a, a town called, uh, an area of Boston called Dorchester and in a little micro neighborhood called uh, Talbot Norfolk Triangle. And, uh, or, and Common Square was our larger neighborhood. You don't need to know this except to know that it was a tiny little part of Boston that we were serving. And we had this ministry team that had come together for the summer and we were the summer staff who hosted youth groups. And so like when the youth group comes in, we've got to be energetic and excited and we've got to be a united team, and they can't see any division or dissension among us. Only there was one guy on this team I could not stand. I mean, just like grated against everything in me. And we got through, we were in training. Like youth group hadn't even come yet. And I'm like, how in the world am I going to make it two and a half months with this guy? You know? And I confessed that to him. Like, we're, we're in training. It's the weekend, weekend before the first youth group is going to come. And I pull him outside on the back porch, and I'm like, dude, i got to be honest with you. I'm struggling to get along with you right now. And it's, I, I'm trying to own it and be like, no, it's really me. It was him. But it's really me. You know, no, it wasn't. It was both of us, right? Like, I'm trying to own it and do the right thing and use I statements and all the things that you're supposed to do in conflict resolution and admit to him, like, just how my heart's feeling. And he's like, oh, man, I'm sorry for whatever I've done. And, and I'll be praying for you that your heart would be. And just wait till the kids get here. Then you're really going to love me. And I was like, I don't know if that's going to fix it, but okay, right? You're not going to magically become another person, but all right. Um, and today we're not the best of friends. But over the course of that summer, I learned to really appreciate him, to really appreciate Chris the way that he carried himself, the way that he worked with kids, the way that he connected with our neighbors in ways that I couldn't. A lot of our neighbors were Latino. Chris was from Southern California and spoke fluent Spanish and was culturally a lot like the guys around our neighborhood. And so he made connections with our neighbors that I just could not. And I, I learned to tolerate him at first. And then I learned to appreciate him. And by the end of the summer, I was sad to see him leave and when he'd come back to visit, I was super stoked to hang out with him when he was back in town. My love grew over time. And that's, that's one example. That's, that's one example that a lot of us live in. But I think falling in love with God's word is, is somewhat like that, but it's really more like stepping into an arranged marriage. Now, we, we live in a world where, like, if it's not love at first sight, it ain't love, Right? We live in a world of shallow love where if I'm not immediately attracted to you, I can't love you. We live in a world where the idea of growing into love with a person is foreign to our language and to our popular culture. And yet throughout history, that's more often been the case than now, than not. The whole idea that like I make the decision of who I will love independent of my family and independent of my parents and my brothers and sisters and independent of what it means for the rest of the people around me is really radically individualist and it's really a new concept in the world. In most places in the world throughout most of history, 
who you marry and who you choose to love and who you grow in love with was a matter of the family. It was a matter of the community. It wasn't something we did individually. And if you go to places with arranged marriages, more often than not, those marriages tend to be very healthy. Not always, not in every case. You're going to find unhealthy marriages in arranged marriage cultures. But if you go to a healthy culture that still practices arranged marriage, or at least where the family is involved in couples getting together, you'll find that over time, these people who were strangers at first learn to grow in love and dedication to each other as they get to know each other and invest in one another's lives. And we grow deeper and deeper and deeper in love. But in a culture where if it's not love at first sight, it's not love, and I make all the decision individually and independently about who I'm going to love and who I'm going to marry, marriages fall apart when those feelings go away. And that's how we tend to treat the Bible. We treat the Bible like we treat our music. If it doesn't have a nice hook and a chorus I can listen to over and over and over again, I'm not interested in it. Right. Bach has a hard time holding my attention, but top 40 will get me because it's got something that will hook me and hold me. We're not in things for the long haul. And we treat the Bible the same way. If it's not immediately relevant to my life, or it doesn't have something inspirational to say to me right now, I have no real interest in it. What on earth does the book of Numbers have to do with my life right now? And there ain't nothing inspirational in the book of Numbers. You can spin something, but you got to have a good preacher to spin numbers to inspire you. Okay? We treat the Bible the way that we treat our relationships and our love. We don't treat the Bible like an arranged marriage where it is God's word given to us that we have to fall in love with over the long term. We treat it like a quick fix. We treat it like a first aid kit for our souls and to inspire us and get us moving. And if it's not, now, I mean, what verses do you put on your walls, right? What verses are you putting up around your house? They're the things that you want to see that inspire you, that give you hope and peace. You're not putting up Levitical laws on your walls. But when we look to the scripture, when we look to what God has said, it's exactly the Levitical laws that he says put up on your walls. Write these on your forehead. Put them on your hands so that when you look in the mirror and when you're doing work, you're reminded of my instruction, how I have told you to live. Because I am God and I know how best you can flourish. And if you will obey me, if you will follow me, I will lead you into flourishing. I will give you a hope and a future and a peace through my instruction. And that's why it's so cool that the longest psalm is a psalm all about dedication to God's word. The longest psalm is not about God beating down enemies. There are lots of psalms about that. The longest psalm is not about lament, oh, woe is me, God, why are you not here saving me? There are lots of psalms about that. The longest psalm is not about a flu, a, you know, effervescent worship of God, like jumping and dancing. There are lots of psalms about that. They tend to be the shortest ones, by the way, just in case you're keeping count. The songs of like overflowing joy are usually like three to eight verses. Songs of lament are much longer. The songs of like what we call imprecatory psalms, God bring the wrath down on my enemies, longer even. The longest psalm, though, is about dedication to God's word. And it's really cool how it's made. I'm a, I'm a language nerd, so maybe you won't track with this. But the 119th psalm is broken into 22 parts 
based on the Hebrew alphabet. Or if you're going to use the Hebrew term, it's Aleph Beit. The Hebrew Aleph Beit, right? The 119th Psalm is broken into 22 parts based on that. But even cooler is like each section is eight lines, and each line begins with the letter of the section. Right? So the Aleph section is Aleph, 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 right? We are now in the Mem section, which is like the middle of the Hebrew alphabet, if you're going through the, the Hebrew letters. And where we've landed is, is kind of the dead center of Psalm 119. And in the biblical parlance, the middle is important. The middle is kind of where the climax usually comes. And the things on either side point to it. Now, Psalm 119 says the same kind of stuff over and over and over again. And it goes through kind of the whole realm of human emotions in relation to the word of God. But I love this portion of the Psalms, 97 to 104, what Terry read for us. How I love your instruction. It is my meditation all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are always with me. I have more insight than all my teachers because your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the elders because I obey your precepts. And these are aspirational things that this psalmist is saying, aspirational things that they're telling to themselves. God, I want to fall in love with your word. I want to know it. I want to fall in love with your word like I would in an arranged marriage. I want to get to know it. I want it to be deep within me. I want to be intimately connected to it all the days of my life. I want to know you more and more every day through your word. This is how God has spoken to us, and this is the way that we get to know our God. Imagine a relationship with a person you never spoke to. Imagine living in a house with a person who never talked to you. Some of y'all have had roommates like that, right? you like, <laughs> glad y'all didn't hear Prentice just now. No. Um, some of y'all have had roommates, spouses like that. Brothers and sisters like that. Some of y'all had parents like that. Who you were just existing in the same space, but you never communicated. A lot of Christians treat God like that. They come to church, or they do some of the Christian things, and they're basically just existing in the same space as God, never communicating with him. Never hearing from his word. Never responding in prayer and worship. Never communing with his people coming and going, doing, checking the box. And so we treat God like we do a quiet roommate. We're just kind of there together. And maybe it works. But it's the thing that we have to do because it's the place that we live or the place that we grew up. And the psalmist is saying, no! My desire is to meditate day and night on God's word. And so that's the first thing that we read in this psalm. The first few verses, 97 to 99. This is the psalmist just saying that my first response to God's word is just to meditate on it. To sit in it. To read it slowly. Anybody have a one-year Bible or a through-the-Bible-in-a-year plan? Anybody ever tried one of those and failed? Anybody done it, like actually made it through the Bible in a year? Oh, thank God. Okay, good. Because I'll tell you what, my whole life is studying this book and I ain't been able to do those things. I get distracted too easy and I get focused on other stuff. Um, 
and I, I, while I appreciate things like the Bible in a Year program or, or things that really try to move us through Scripture so we really get a broad understanding, I think sometimes that works against us because I think God would rather have you deeply meditate on one gospel for six months than to skim through the whole Bible in a year. I think God would rather have you sit with his word and really digest it and know Jesus through it and know what he is saying to you and let it sink deep within you than he is worried about you skimming through the scripture. God wants you to know the Bible. He wants you to know his whole word. And I promise you, the more that you know all of it, the more connections you can make, the more open it becomes and the more beautiful and incredible this book becomes. But when you're starting out, just pick up a gospel and sit in it. Just sit under the ministry of Jesus. Just sit in the words of Jesus. Read one chapter every day for a week and pray on it. Let God speak to you through it. Sit with it. I think sometimes we move too fast with the scripture. And what the psalmist here is saying is that when I think about your law, when I think about your Torah, your instruction, God, when I think about the things that you have told us and the ways that you've communicated yourself to us, I just want to sit in that all day long. I want, it to, I want to marinate in it. I want the scent of your word to come off of my life like a delicious offering to you. I want my neighbors to be able to sense the word of God on me like clothes. I want them to look at me and know I've spent time in your presence, God, in your word. The first response to God's word is simply to meditate on it. Read the Bible slowly. Let it sink in. Let it become part of you. Like when you eat a meal and the elements of that meal become part of your biochemistry, let the scripture sink into your soul and become a living part of you. I want, I want the scent of God's love to come out of me like I just ate a meal full of garlic. You know, like I just want to walk through a room and people are like, oh my gosh, I can smell Jesus on him. And not be repulsed like they are with garlic, but like drawn to it, right? Like a good perfume, right? So the first response is to meditate on it. And here's what happens as we meditate on God's word. The more that you meditate on it, the more you invest in knowing God and getting close to him. The more that you understand God's character, the more you want to be like him. And so the more you desire to obey God's word. It starts with meditation. It starts with just knowing it. We often skip to obedience first. People come and they become Christians and we're like, okay, here are the things you need to do, the way you need to clean up your life. When in fact, what we need to do is be like, here's the gospel of John, just meditate on it. Fall in love with Jesus. And the more you fall in love with Jesus, the more you will want to be like him and the more you'll want to obey him. And that's exactly what the psalmist does here. Verses 100 and 102. To 102, I understand more than my elders because I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path to follow your word. I've not turned from your judgments, for you yourself have instructed me. 
The psalmist is saying, like, I'm not getting these, like, rules from the religious system. I'm not getting a checklist from the legalists in my life that I have to earn God's love. I love you. You love me. Therefore, I want to do what you have said. And so I obey you. And as I obey you, I grow in wisdom. And now even as a young person, I'm wiser than the elders because I'm obeying you, Lord. Meditation on God's word leads to wisdom. And biblically, wisdom is just God's word in action. It's what God's word does when confronted with the realities of the world. Meditation on God's word is the only way to true wisdom. To sit under it and to fall in love with the God who's given it to us and to know that his instruction is better than life. And then to know that the only way I can properly live in the world in God's wisdom is to know it and to meditate on it and to soak in God's word. Let it permeate every aspect of my being. And then I desire to obey, not to earn God's love, but because I've been in God's word, I know God's love already. Not to earn his favor, but to know because I know God's word that his favor already rests on me. And then I don't have to perform. It's not a way of performing and trying to look good before God and people. It's just born out of love and desire to be like God. And it's born from a mind that now has been enlivened and enlightened to know that the only wise path of life is according to God's instruction. The only way to live in wisdom is to do it, live this life as God has called us to. Every other way of life is folly. It's foolishness. Every other philosophy and system of rules Every other thing that we could put ourselves under to try and make sense of the world is foolishness when we have the very words of the creator God in front of us. So to turn from these and to instead invest all of our time in leadership manuals or self-help guides or whatever other thing the world is trying to put in front of us to tell us how to live a wise life, when compared to the word of God, it's foolishness. There's good help out there. But if it's not rooted in God's way of life, it's foolishness. The word of God is the only way to wisdom. And the only way to become wise in the word of God is to meditate on it to the point that we long to obey it. And so the psalmist here is meditating on God's word. The psalmist is obeying God's word. And then finally, this is beautiful. As the psalmist meditates and obeys, now the psalmist moves to delight. We want to start with delight. We want to start with love at first sight, right? We want to start with, I delight in you, therefore I love you. And the psalmist says, I want to grow in love so that I will delight in God. I want to grow in my love and dedication to his word so that I will delight in my king, in my God, my master, my maker. And so 103 and 104 here, how sweet your word is to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. 
I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every false way. This is, this is the beautiful cycle of falling in love with God. This is the beautiful cycle of falling in love with his word. We don't begin in a place of love for God's word. Like I said a couple weeks ago, we default to conformity to the world. We don't default to obedience to God's word. We don't default to transformation in Christ. We default to conformity to the world, to going the way of the world. We don't start with love for God's word. It has to grow within us. And so the psalmist here doesn't start with delight. The psalmist here starts with meditation and obedience and then moves into delight. And then the more that we delight, the more we long to meditate, the more we obey, the more we delight, the more we meditate, the more we obey. And the cycle continues and it grows and it grows. But I'll tell you what, it can be really hard to take that first step. That, that cycle may sound wonderful to some of us. It certainly sounds wonderful to me. To grow in love for God's word, to obey God and become like Jesus in everything I do, and to grow in delight with my God and King, that, that is the sweetest tray I can imagine being put in front of me. Take away all the goodies of life, and if that's all I have, that sounds wonderful. Wonderful. But if I'm not starting from a place of, God's, of love for God's word, then man, it can feel like a chore. It can feel like such a chore to sit and to read this stuff, especially when I'm reading the stuff that isn't inspirational, that isn't immediately relevant to my life. Especially when I get to those places where I'm just like mind-numbed by what I'm reading. How do we start then? How do we start with God's word? And how do we get into that cycle? What's the on-ramp to this cycle, God? How do, I, how do I do this? And fortunately for us, providentially for us, God has already come to us as his word. For us, who are in this world, who are followers of Jesus, who have seen God's word walking in flesh and heard his words, who have the Holy Spirit of God come to us just as Jesus promised. Delight in God's word begins by delight in the word who came as flesh and bone, according to John 1.1, when the word of God became flesh and walked among us. When the word which was God came down to earth. For us, delight in God's word begins with delight in the word, in Jesus himself. And we turn our eyes upon Jesus first. We turn our eyes upon God manifest among us as a human being. We turn our eyes to him first. And we know who he has called us. And we know the love that he has given us and we know the empowering presence of God's Spirit living within us. And we turn to Jesus. And we find delight in Jesus, the Word incarnate, the Word made flesh. And he moves us to love and appreciate the rest of the Scriptures. See, as followers of Jesus, 
According to the teaching of Jesus himself, when we go to the scripture, we are always looking for him. He is on every page of the scripture. God's plan and God's purpose and God's delight in Christ and his son made flesh speaks through every story of the word. And when we come to the scripture, we are seeing God on display in Jesus Christ. We are seeing the word made flesh. Shortly after Jesus rose from the dead, he was, uh, uh, there were two of his disciples, one named Cleopas and one unnamed disciple. Maybe it was Cleopas' wife, maybe it was a friend, whoever it was, these were two followers of Jesus who were really bummed. I mean, really, like they were, they were despondent. And they were leaving wherever they were, I think Jerusalem, and they're, they're going back home to a place called Emmaus. They're walking on this road, and it's some miles that they've got to go. And as they're walking, this dude comes along. Now, this is not uncommon. Like, we, again, individualist society, right? So we imagine two people on a road, alone, nobody else around, and, like, suddenly this dude just appears and comes, and they're like, like, by magic. Now, that's not normal, right? Like, they would be, there'd be, like, a crowd of people kind of walking this road. There might be a, ton, a bunch of people walking this road, And one of the people walking this road comes up alongside Cleopas and this other unnamed person, which would be totally normal. You know, they kind of overheard a little bit of the conversation. They're kind of like, hey, what are you guys talking about? Like, that's pretty pretty interesting what you're talking about. And Cleopas is like, yeah, our rabbi was killed. Like, it it really sucks. Like, you know. And so this this stranger who's now walking with Cleopas and this this unnamed person um, walks with them for a while. And they're telling This unnamed person, they're telling this stranger what happened in Jerusalem and why they're sad and what's gone on. And we hear that along the way, this stranger starts telling them about how all the scriptures point to Jesus. They learn that this stranger is at least another disciple that they had never met before. And the stranger starts telling them all about how all the scriptures are being fulfilled. All the scriptures are, are pointing to Jesus, their master who was, who was killed. And they don't, apparently don't know about the resurrection. They may hear rumors of it, but they, they're not sure that it's true. But you can imagine, like, as this stranger is walking with them, Jesus in the flesh, and they don't know it, they're walking along this road, and you can feel the hope rising in them. What if what this guy is saying is true? What if all that fear and all that pain and all that, all that anxiety and all that mourning, well, what if everything we've been feeling for the past two days we don't need to feel anymore? What if he's right? And their, their hearts are burning within them as they walk. That's the language that the, Luke, the writer, uses. Their hearts burned within them as they listened to this stranger. And I think that's his way of saying, hope is rising The fear and the despondency is going. And they begin to wonder, what if it's true that all the scriptures point to Jesus? What if it's true that this is what was supposed to happen? And they get to the house. 
And Cleopas and, and his, I'm just going to say Cleopas' his wife. Cleopas and this other person say, hey, come in and have dinner with us. Like, we want to hear more. We just long to hear more because you're speaking God's word to us and we can sense that it's being fulfilled. You're speaking God's word and like the psalmist of 119, our hearts are burning for more. We want more and more and more of this truth. And Jesus walks into the house with them, breaks bread just like he did on the last night before he died and then he's gone. And they realize what's just happened. Can you imagine the party they throw? Like, we don't hear what happens after that. But can you imagine, like, Cleopas and this other person, like, running out the door and being like, hey, everybody, you won't believe what just happened. There's no way you'll believe. Jesus was dead, and then he was at my table. Jesus was in a grave, and then he walked miles with us. And they're telling everybody about him because God's word had been opened up and Jesus had been revealed through his word. And my prayer for us, church, just like the psalmist of 119, just like Cleopas and that disciple on the road, is that as we encounter Jesus through his word, our hearts would burn for more. That as we encounter Jesus through his word, our hearts would long for more and more and more. And as we realize that every time we open this word, Jesus is sitting at the table with us. Our excitement, our joy, our delight in who he is and in God's word would overflow. And we couldn't help but like Cleopas and that other disciple say to everybody, you won't believe what happens every time I open this Bible. You won't believe what happens every time I sit down to a meal with my brothers and sisters and I know Jesus is present with us. You won't believe what happens every time we gather together and we break that bread and we drink that cup and we know Christ's presence among us. You won't believe it. Come and see. Come and find out. The more that we delight in Jesus, the more we delight in his word, the more we grow into the likeness of Jesus, and the more we obey him, the more we delight in him, the more we long for everyone in our lives to experience this joy. And the more we long to be united to other people who experience that joy too. Brothers and sisters, as we embark on this series through the scripture, learning about God's word, learning about how he's spoken to us. My prayer is that our hearts would burn for more and that you would never, ever, ever forget that when you open this word, you are sitting at the table with Jesus himself and you are asking God the Holy Spirit to instruct you and to point you to all the ways that these words put Jesus in front of you. My prayer is that we would grow in delight and in joy and not in legalism and wouldn't beat ourselves up when we miss a day of reading, but that when we do miss that day of reading, we feel the loss of it because we long to sit at the table with Jesus himself, who is this word made flesh, this word crucified, this word risen again, and this word reigning as king over his people now and forever, and this word who will one day return to make all things right and to end all the suffering 
and to bring nothing but celebration for all of eternity. Turn your eyes upon Jesus today. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your word made flesh, for Jesus come among us. Thank you that when we come to this scripture, when we come to your word, we are encountering the living God. We are reading the living words of the living God, that we are hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit within us. And I pray, Lord, that when we come, we would never come alone, but that even in our moments of solitude, when we are reading your scripture, we are fully aware of your presence in it and in us, communing together and leading us more into the image of Jesus. God, would you implant within us a deep, deep desire to know your word more, to meditate on it day and night, to obey it and to grow in delight in it and in you, King Jesus. We pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org. 